Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship, and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I'm here, as always, with Father Stephen Gautier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Father Stephen, I have here the uh, Michael W. Holmes volume of the Apostolic Fathers. It's a little side-by-side of Greek texts and English translations. Uh, I like to open it up and, you know, pretend I can read Greek. Uh, but it's it really is, uh, it's one of my favorite things to pick up off the shelf because it's really beautiful translations of some of the earliest uh, texts that we have in Christian literature from the apostolic and the sub-apostolic era. Um, we, you know, they, we've done episodes on a lot of these. There's the uh, letter, Letters of Ignatius. Um, there is the Epistle to Diognetus, uh, one of my favorites. And toward, the, the thing about these that is so great is that they're, you know, they're all pretty short. You can read them pretty quickly, except for this one in the back. I've got it open right here. It's the Shepherd of Hermas. And this is not a quick read. This is kind of a little novella here. Um, so the we're let's talk about the the Shepherd of Hermas. And and because it's uh one of the on the longer side, we're gonna we're gonna need two episodes. We're gonna need two episodes to do it. Um so uh it's uh, one of the things that that strikes you about reading Hermas is um it's pretty exciting right father stephen was that a it's, it's a good read yeah i mean really it's like reads like a novel yeah yeah so i mean there's some visions and there's characters and uh it's it it's all it's all very exciting very interesting colorful might be a, a, a it's dialogue all the way through it's back and forth dialogue all the way through with a number of different characters yeah so it's this really colorful and interesting dialogue here um, but it's, it's, it's a book that I got to say, when you read it, it's, it's more than a little bit mysterious. Um, so it's what, one, one of the things, Father Stephen, I want to ask you is, you know, why is this book, um, so popular? It's, uh, it's, it's not the most straightforward text in the world. Um, but, uh, th- this is in a pretty serious circulation in the early church, Father Stephen, is that fair to say? It certainly was, and it was highly regarded. For example, uh, we know that Origen refers to it as scripture. Uh, it was actually con- in one of the earliest uh, compilations of the entire New Testament, a manuscript called Sinaiticus from Mount Sinai. Uh, it's there with the books of the New Testament, so it was very highly regarded. And, uh, you know, so that's one of the reasons it's important. But what we do know is that it really is, a gr- putting that aside, it certainly shouldn't be in the New Testament, but putting that aside... It gives us a good idea of what some of the key issues were that people were facing in the Church of Rome in the mid-2nd century. Hmm. It gives us sort of a, you know, uh, the pulse of the Church at Rome and some important issues in the middle of the 2nd century. So it's really speaking to the sort of soul of of, of that time in a, in, in a special way. Very much so, yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about the title, The Shepherd of Hermas. Uh, does that mean... There's a, a shepherd wandering around a place called Hermas. What's going on here? I think for a typical English speaker, that's what it would seem to be, but it's not. Hermas is a person. 
Okay, uh, he, you know, it's the name of a person who's actually the, um, uh, puts himself forward as the author of this book. You know, he identifies himself as Hermas, and he's also the protagonist. It's in the form of dialogues, and he's the protagonist. He's the, the, one, uh, the one guy we have all the way through the book. And so, but here's what's interesting here, is that Hermas actually does meet a shepherd, an angel, actually, the angel of penance disguised as a shepherd, who will walk through much of the book with him. And therefore, it could either mean, we, the title's ambiguous, it could mean, you know, The Shepherd by Hermas. <laughs> you know, this is the book called The Shepherd by Hermas, like Word and Table by Alex Wilkes. Mm. Or it could mean The Shepherd Who Appeared to Hermas, in that sense. You know, this is the story of that shepherd who appeared, you know, The Shepherd of Hermas. Mm. Mm. So the title itself is a little ambiguous. Most people think it probably means the first, you know, The Shepherd by Hermas. Okay. But, but most people have to admit who've never read the book assume it's like some place. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, but her, so, um, so, okay, so, but that means that Hermas is not a shepherd, right? No, he is not. Well, first of all, is Hermas even a real person? Well, we don't know. There are two possibilities. That's a really good question. I told you this book was, was interesting. Yeah, he could be a fictional protagonist, or he might actually be a person, a real person. If he's a fictional, if he's a real person, he's one of two people, we feel pretty sure. The one that a lot of people early on thought he might be is we say, I've seen that. I've heard that name before. And for most of us, I mean, the New Testament. And sure enough, Paul refers to a Hermas in Romans 16, 14. Mm-hmm. Now, almost no one believes that's the right, that's the right person for this Hermas. But early on, a lot of people did. And that might have given the book a lot of credibility thinking of that association with Paul through Hermas. Okay. That connection. Like Luke had a lot of his cred because he he was connected with Paul, like Mark was connected with Peter. So we don't know if Hermas is a real person or not, but... Well, there's there's another very real person he could have been. Okay. And that person could have been... We know the Bishop of Rome in the middle of the second century was called Pius. He's actually the first of the 12 um, bishops of Rome who've had that name. And he had a brother, a very real historical figure named, and this would be about the time the book was probably written from all the evidence we have. So it might very well be a man named Hermas who's the brother of the Bishop of Rome in the middle of the second century. So it's one of the, if it's a real person, it's one of those two, but it's just as likely it was just a fictional protagonist. I Somebody see. wrote this book and had a fictional protagonist. Let's call him Hermas. Interesting. Okay, so we'll never know. But who is, I mean, whether he's a real person or not, who does the text say that, that Hermas is? Well, the text tells us he was a slave who was sold to a Roman woman named Rhoda. And he was later freed and converted and became a layman in the church. And he was married. He was married and a father. And his children had caused some real problems, including some serious business problems for him. And his wife was a problem, too. She was given over to gossip. And so that's all we have for biographically for him. You know, that he was somebody in the Roman church. He's actually given a special assignment, you know, to bring a message back to the church. (laughs) You know, so he must have been, you know, a significant layman as he portrays himself in the book. Okay, I see. I see. Um, So he let's let's talk about when this text is is written and where. So where does this come from? Uh, We're confident it was written at Rome. You know, even the book talks about his being at Rome, being sold to Rome, but that he was at Rome. It was written in Greek, although we don't have a complete Greek version. We have a complete Latin version. But it was originally written in Greek, which was commonly used in Rome at the time. 
you know, in, in the, the, the church in Rome was actually held its services in Greek at that period. Uh, so it's written in Greek by, at about, about one, no later than 150 uh, AD. Okay, I see. I see. So this is, this is, this is very early. Very early. Um, so now one of the things here is that I said earlier that this text is pretty interesting. Um, and it's interesting because it, it kind of sticks out among these early apostolic writings and, and, and indeed, you know, across the patristic writings. You know, this is not a treatise. It's not an essay. Uh, it's not a tract. Um, this is, like you said earlier, this is kind of an ongoing dialogue um, between uh, Hermas and, and some characters. So tell, tell us about the form here. You know, what is it, what is it like reading Hermas? What kind of literature is it? It's a strange combination of things. Um, it is an, it reads like a novel. It's an interesting dialogue. And what will happen when you have a vision, he'll see the vision. It comes, then he'll be confused. He'll pray about it. He'll have another vision explaining what the first one meant and telling you the keys, okay. <laughs> you know, to all the different points. So we'll, we'll get those things. He'll explain, here's what it meant. Uh, he has to beg for that. He's always said, you know, you're stupid that you don't understand. You shouldn't have to ask or something or ask God. And he said, well, you're here. Can't you tell me? Didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we have this ongoing dialogue. Um, he also has, it's very apocalyptic, which is very popular among the Jewish populations. You know, at the, at the time of Christ, the apocalyptic was a regular type of literature. So we have elaborate visions. I mean, elaborate visions. Hmm. A lot of symbolism, which happily for us is explained in the text. It doesn't always go with, you know, he has a vision where something means one thing in one vision, something else in another, you know, so you have to keep on your toes. And he combines it together with this very Jewish apocalyptic. He has very Greco, you know, the Greeks and Romans love writing about pastors, you know, shepherds running through the fields and things. They call pastoral. Yeah. Well, we have a lot of that here too. We have lovely young women talking about their bared shoulder, you know, <laughs> running across the fields. <laughs> <laughs> we even have a pretty racy passage. Uh, Man. Okay. Well, I mean, well, we got to get into this now. Um, <laughs> okay. So, uh, so, let, let's let's talk about the uh, the structure here. Um, let's kind of lay the text out before we move into it. Okay, well, the, the structure is basically there are five visions. So it starts out with five visions setting up. What's going on here? And he's saying, well, here's what happened. You know, one day this happened to me and then that happened to me, etc. And it came to his five visions. And all these five visions are leaving something to him that he's basically on a mission, a mission from God. And that mission from God is to share 12 precepts. These preps, precepts are, you know, here are things Christians have to remember, very important things for to remember. So we will talk about these 12 sort of commandments of moral life for Christians, you know, things people are getting wrong. And then we have, we finish up with 10 similitudes, which are really basically parables, elaborate parables. Some of them are very short, some are very elaborate. You know, parables, uh, you know, putting this all together. Hmm. Okay. That's the basic structure of the book. It's uh, in 114, uh, you know, these long paragraphs that they call chapters, long paragraphs. By comparison, the uh, Didache is only 16. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is, these are kind of, these are, this is sort of didactic literature, right, put into different forms, right? Yeah, right. And the biggest thing you come up with, we have five visions. We have a situation that explains why the vision happens. We have these visions. And then we're told, actually, I'm coming to you to set this all up because I have this great message you need to give. 
Hmm. Okay. You know, and these are these precepts and things and all. So, you know, I'm sending you, on a, you know, go write them down. You know, here that we got to share this with the church in Rome. You got to share it with these folks. And then we're going to have, then we come back to 10 parables, you know, very colorful parables, you know, on this. And then he sent on his mission. So that's the basic structure of the book. Huh. Okay. Okay. So it's a little bit like maybe the cross between, you know, a, a Christmas carol and the book of virtues or something like that. <laughs> yeah. With a little bit of, um, uh, pilgrim's progress. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, okay. So let's look at the themes here. Um, what's so important that we share that, that, that is shared with the churches at Rome. Well, two things, this is really interesting. It's a combination of what I call rigorism and pastoral encouragement. Rigorism means, wow, we're not very forgiving about moral failings. And for example, the whole book is going to start out that he's helping uh, a woman he knows as a friend who's bathing in the in the in the uh, the river, the Tiber. She's bathing there, and he he see, oh, you know, hello, and she comes out, she helps her out, and he's not looking at her impurely or something, but he does notice that she's beautiful, and he thinks to himself, boy, I wish my wife were beautiful and also had a nice personality like she does. And we're going to find out that's terrible. Uh, even though it was described as sin, the desire to sin is itself evidence of a sinful nature. So even though he didn't follow us up, didn't follow up on it or anything, you know. So that's pretty rigorous. Hmm. You know, the idea that we shouldn't even be tempted to sin in the sense of tempted in the sense of wanting. Tempted, you know, yeah, it's put in front of you, but we shouldn't say, oh, this is hard to turn down. It should be an easy no. Hmm. Hmm. If it's not an easy no, it means there's something sinful in us. That's pretty rigorous. Well, that's pretty interesting, actually, just, you know, connecting it to the the present day. I mean, you know, so many, you know, men's uh, accountability groups and things like that at churches revolve a lot around, you know, keeping your eye from wandering and, uh, you know, being grateful for, for your wife and, and not desiring things. So, I mean, it, on, on one level, it's kind of interesting and, and, and fascinating to see that, you know, some temptations to sin never change you know, from one. But age in to his next. case, what's a little troubling is it wasn't that he just sort of noticed she's beautiful. It wasn't, it wasn't lust. No one close to that. You know, in his case, it was just simply he happened to notice a woman was beautiful. That alone says, well, you're married. Why should that be of any interest to you? Huh, okay. So is this is going even you just further. one of the guys. Yeah. Why isn't this just one of the guys since you're a married man? <laughs> and <laughs> I see. I see. Okay. So that's pretty, that's pretty tough sledding. So taking it uh, to the, taking it to the next level then. That's right. You wouldn't even notice their women. You know, you, <laughs> how could you even notice? Uh, so he's pretty rigorous. On the other hand, What's, maybe as he's doing this because he wants to emphasize he's not an easy guy because one of the real problems in the early church was, is it possible after you've been baptized to have a serious sin forgiven? And we find out, and we're going to find later on, that his sin really isn't all, it's a sin, but it's not really all that serious. But they're saying that actually, he's, yes, the good news, it is possible for Christians who have fallen to be restored. Some people argued if you committed a serious sin after you were baptized, that, you know, this uh, couldn't be forgiven. And he very much makes, and we know this was a big issue in the Roman church, is that no, you definitely can do penance and be restored to the church if you've committed a serious sin. Okay, okay. So that, that's, uh, that's definitely something that is alive in a lot of places in the early, early church, right? Like how, right. To, to what extent? I mean, there's, there's Hebrews 6, you know, that, that, that talks about this as, as well. So it's, it's wrestling with that um is is kind of what you're saying 
Right. And so he does that. Yeah, on the one hand, he said, I'm not, don't get me wrong. I take this stuff really in earnest. You know, Christians have to have this really very high standard, but people do fall. And I'm saying if they do penance, there is a possibility, uh, you know, of being restored. You know, you can be restored if you do penance, which is, uh, you know, to, to, you know to, to get your health in order. However, he does emphasize that uh, only once mm. for serious, for serious sin, only once. Okay. Okay. I see. Um, so you said earlier that, you know, this is quoted by Origen. Um, you know, is this, how is, how is Hermas received um, across the early patristic writers? Well, Irenaeus, our first theologian, really liked him. And Clement of Alexandria likes him, you know, um, uh, uh, cites him, etc. Irenaeus does too. Origen actually cites him as scripture. And he's actually included in the canon of the New Testament in the Ethiopian church. Oh, interesting. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. So we've got, even in, you know, a, a, a present day church, we've got Hermas part of, as part of scripture. Okay. Yeah. Of course, the Ethiopian church has a very generous canon of scripture. Mm -hmm. They have a lot, by far, more than the regular deuterocanonical books. So they're much more open to the, the canon than other churches have been. But it certainly speaks to how popular and widely circulated. Oh, it is. certainly was popular. Yeah. It was highly regarded. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great. So let's talk about the theology here. You know, when we're, when we're looking at Hermas, um, is it, you know, when we look at, for instance, you know, Irenaeus or, um, or certain other early patristic fathers, we can see, you know, the, the theology of the church and the Trinity and these things kind of embedded in there, maybe not, uh, completely as fleshed out or distinguished as we, as, as it becomes later. Um, but in other writings, you really see that theology, you know, being sort of mixed up or confused. So where does the shepherd of Hermas fall? Well, it certainly is confused. Uh, because when you read it, uh, we, the Holy Spirit is actually called the Son of God more than once. And mm. it sounds almost like a form of adoptionism that you have the Father and the Holy Spirit and his spirit sort of comes into Jesus and Jesus is faithful to that. So a big theme in Irenaeus is, or rather Irenaeus, excuse me, in Hermas, is that, you know, that you can't have this God's spirit in you and have sin in you. It'll, there's not room for the spirit if you do that kind of thing. And Jesus sort of perfectly has, it's almost like a form of adoptionism, it seems. He doesn't say much about it, but he does call the Holy, it seems confused, the Son of God. And then he says that Jesus is the Son of God too. Uh, you might say, well, does that just simply mean they both come from the Father? No, you know, it's, it seems that the Holy Spirit, I think it's, I personally, to be, um, to be, um, to be positive about this, I think he might be trying to deal with the part of the incarnation. Hmm. You know, the Holy Spirit, your Christ was incarnate by the Holy Spirit. I think that's, a, there's an orthodox way we can understand it. And that would be, you know, the, the Holy Spirit, you know, is incarnate in the, hum, the humanity of Jesus Christ, you know, who, and, you know, thus becomes the Son of God, you know, in, in, you know, the human and divine. So it's kind of trying to make sense of the incarnation is what you mean. Well, that would be the generous interpretation. I think yeah. it could be interpreted in an orthodox sense, but I wouldn't uh, hold myself to that. He's just very confused. But, you know, it's very clear to him that the Holy Spirit, you know, that, you know, the Christ is conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in Christ. Yeah, but the Holy Spirit is referred to as Son of God. But again, perhaps he thinks, well, he proceeds from the Father like Jesus does. But it's not clear. And matter of fact, the way he talks about the Holy Spirit and the Father, one, uh, 
one uh, person talked about it, one of the scholars who's talked about this book, uh, called about a binity instead of a trinity. <laughs> like two persons. You know, it seems like there's the Father and the Holy Spirit, you know, and that Jesus was just sort of an g- example of what the Holy Spirit could be like it is in us and in Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think that's unfair. I don't think that's fair. But the point is, this is not a place to learn Trinitarian theology. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, well, well, you know, to be fair, um, our language, our precise language uh, for that develops uh, uh, in, into its final form a lot later. Um, so mm-hmm. you can expect right. to see folks early on uh, wrestling with, with exactly what's, what's, what's going on here. Yes. So, well, I think that what we're going to need to do, Father Stephen, is uh, take a break. And then in the next episode, we're going to have to come back and talk uh, over, uh, just maybe give just an overview um, of these five visions, at least. I don't think we've got time to go into absolutely every section of the book, but we got to get into the visions. They're so exciting. got to get into the visions. <laughs> um, you know, this is, the, like I said, this is the, the, the Christmas Carol kind of stuff. Um, so uh, with that, uh, we'll, we'll drop it off here. Um, and I'll just say thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again next week for more Shepherd of Hermas, more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening. <laughs>